Did you know that 83% of technology implementations fail to achieve expected business outcomes? Well, managing technology is incredibly complex. IT covers all processes and everything IT does impacts people in some way. The function is only three decades old, but changing at the fastest pace. Technology industry is highly profitable with intense marketing. Tech companies have the vast majority of the tech talent, not you. Clarity Chat Purpose is rooted in helping you solve IT challenges for business success, to help you decode the complexity, to help you leverage partners effectively, to help you partner with business more effectively, to help you manage change better, to help you attract talent. You get this clarity via experiences of CIOs and business leaders, shared informally and candidly over a cup of tea. Hey, welcome to this 38th edition of Clarity Chat Podcast, a freewheeling Clarity Chat as AMA Ask Me Anything. I will answer the questions coming from audience loaded with my experience and insights. Today we cover what life advice do I give to young people to be successful in life? What is it that the government can adopt, learn from the private sector? How are we integrating customer emotions with digitization? How does work culture affect decision making? and some questions and discussion around manufacturing organizations with ITOT strategies. This is the 38th episode of Clarity Chat and I'm excited to discuss with you the unanswered questions from past Clarity Chats in an Ask Me Anything fashion. What life advice will you give to young people uh, to succeed, to be successful in life? Thomas, I'll call you Tom, okay? You know, I think the first thing is like, you know, you have to define what success means to you. And uh, the definitions of success uh, keep changing over a period period of time. So let me just share from my experience how it was. Uh, initially, uh, you know, I came from a small town. My parents were not very well off and I wanted to sort of pay back to them. I wanted to be successful. That means, and that time the meaning of success was earning money. But then as I, uh, you know, sort of started working, I started doing well, you know, these, the definition of success started shifting towards, you know, adding value. Initially it is like money first, but then I think after a time, after a while you realize that if you add value, the money will follow. So, you know, uh, the definition of success for us is the cart, which is the money. But, you know, you have to feed the horse for it, which is your own capabilities. Okay. So first uh, advice I will give you is build capabilities. Keep learning. Capabilities come out of learning. So you have to keep learning and build capability and uh, success follows. Okay. Whether it's uh, money or whether it's a good job or whether it's like, you know, working for one of those big MNCs. Uh, Keep building capability. The second one is I think you are coming at a time when you know the world was hit by pandemic and you have seen suffering you have also you are seeing a war thing in our entire generation you know we hardly uh, saw the scale of war that is coming here and and i think i think you and we have seen the world change quite a bit uh, with technology right i think uh, the one thing that we definitely need anyone who's surviving all of this you know, we need to have a lot of gratitude that means we have to we have to be we have to understand that you know we are privileged to be alive 
we are privileged to have you know our near and dear ones alive and uh, at whatever level of success we are in our in our in our own measure of success look down look towards all of those who have not made it there and i think that is one of the easiest way to feel grateful having an able body or having a steady job or you know even having three meals a day uh, some of these things you know a majority of people out there are not having those privileges so i would say build capability and uh, have gratitude of course there are many more things but you know this is again as i say uh, no gyan i talk from my experiences i think these are the two things uh, that i have always used so uh, capability has made me do new things and has helped me push the boundaries of success while having gratitude has kept my feet on the ground it has uh, always kept me peaceful and make and and uh, i have made sure that i don't i'm not running after mirages okay in the pursuit of success uh, it's the you know the thread that keeps you uh, connected to the ground as your kite flies high if you understand what i mean okay thomas i hope that helps if that does maybe you know send me some comments or a thumbs up uh, i would love to see uh, some validations here okay so now let let me let me take some of the backlog questions we took one live question what can private sector learn from government So Miraj, uh, let me take uh, that question. You see, uh, in private sector, the technology is used for making us more efficient, more productive, meeting our, let's say, uh, making us greener in terms of reducing the use of paper. Okay, uh, reducing uh, the use of electricity with all these upcoming IoT technologies and all that. Okay, so I think there are few things that government can pick up. One is that you know focus on. making the entire governance machinery more and more efficient which i actually see happening you know if you see some of the examples like the passport uh, seva kendra you know, that's an amazing example of what what kind of services you can transform you know which are going uh, to the citizens uh, now when you see the all the public servants out there whether it is the police or the traffic people Uh, i see gradually you know people uh, you know getting those tablets to cut your fines i recently you know went to rto and i found that like you know any document related to your vehicle out there you can actually go to the website and take a print out so uh, the the citizen experience is you know what they should be uh, focusing on there are tons of areas where they have done it and there are tons of areas where it is still lacking but i would say that we are in the right direction and india as a country i have been to many many countries i think india as a country is uh, far far ahead in terms of uh, digitizing the citizen experience and improving it so i would say uh, citizen experience and the second thing is the speed of processes you know bring in slas you know private sector we all work on slas so bringing in slas you know in terms of what would be the turnaround times once once you put in an application and all of that and then putting a digital infrastructure on top of it and uh, i think the biggest thing that i'm realizing as i think on the feet in answering this question is uh, accountability the accountability in public spaces has always been you know poorer uh, than in private sector and that's something where uh, you know uh, technology can play a big role okay now uh, let me uh, do a bit of uh, tango between the live questions and and the backlog uh, let me look for another live question here so okay i can see other people coming here 
yeah dinesh singh dinesh is talking about the electronic toll collection and electronic toll collection is 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 also a great success story where you know the will of the government in terms of saying that you know like uh, everybody better get it and then putting a the entire you know ecosystem together all banks uh, the fast tag being a central repository and any bank can issue a fast tag and still being uh, you know pretty i would say data driven in that sense that has been a that has been a great story i i can tell you i just came today morning from 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 mumbai to pune and uh, all the tolls were electronic Uh, but i can say that you know that is where we also need to benchmark because if you go to other countries uh, the experience is there are no queues actually you know here we still have queues we still have a bit of a lag between you know your uh, fast tag being read and the and the uh, sort of the gate opening i mean i was in bangkok and you know you could actually uh, the lane is without any you know barricades and you can simply zip through at 60 uh, kilometers per hour and and you can pay toll right so there are absolutely no no queues in other countries and i think that's something that we need to kind of learn from still right how are we integrating customer emotions with digitization now this is from prasad bujpal i think we have seen you know enough uh, i would say use of technology without really focusing on the customer experience right i mean the best example i have i always give is a call center whether it's a bank telecom or any other company i think you are put through a labyrinth of ivrs and not much intelligence in terms of hey what is the latest transaction you know on which this guy may have a query and then directing him uh, directly there so um, and like that you know you will find that you know people have done technology but without really integrating the customer experience uh, to that so uh, so prasad i would like to you know change that emotion to experience okay that requires a lot more thoughtfulness in fact i had written an article about a hospital you know where the the, the user interface was pretty great uh, on the portal there was a chat agent uh, you know there was this uh, opd time booking right up front uh, which was pretty thoughtful gesture because most of the people visit a hospital website for for an opd appointment but you know that opd appointment doesn't uh, really the, the process doesn't get completed the chat the process doesn't get completed so the biggest way to integrate customer experience with digitization is to is to really test it out day after day uh, every day to make sure that you know things are working to make sure that the the experience that you are trying to provide to the customers uh, is happening right the next thing is also to you know have some kpis around it because they say that what you measure you can manage what you don't measure you cannot manage so in this case uh, for example was the hospital really tracking as to what is my total number of appointments that i'm getting and what's the appointments coming from the digital channel what's the appointments coming from the chat channel and if we find that there are there are no appointments coming from those channels then you need to question as to what is wrong right and you need to put you know some sort of a internal testing process in place that hey is everything all right now today there are enough i would say uh, testing and automation tools uh, or the monitoring tools which come which can uh, you know at a very micro services level they can uh, you know they can tell you whether you know, something is whether something is broken or not and the the easiest example i can think of is like you know the travel websites 
um so as, as you are going through the process of let's say booking a air ticket or a or a hotel uh, accommodation they you know if the process gets broken somewhere i think an alert gets generated and uh, you immediately get a call from their call center hey sir you know we see that your payment was not completed do you have a problem right and then they will find an alternate means uh, for you so that is that provides a great uh, experience uh, to the customer now bringing uh, you back to like you know how i solved it when we were putting up a call center for the automobile company that you very well know where i worked in you know we didn't want to do ivr in fact uh, we uh, said everyone gets put off by ivr so why not you know try something else now at a at a emotional level everyone connected with that agenda everyone said that yeah you know we want we don't want to do ivr but then when we looked at the call volumes and uh, you know what kind of number of people that we will have to put to give a physical interface you know somebody calling up to hey welcome to tata motors what kind of uh, numbers it would take and we figured out that you know the number was not even at the volumes that we were talking about was about 40 to 50 people because this process tends to be very very fast you know somebody telling you somebody greeting you and then directing you to the uh, to the most relevant person uh, instead of you going through a series of uh, you know options uh, dial this if you if it is this dial this if it is this and then there's a next level then there's a next level and then you go into the respective workflow and then we ask the question that you know at 40 50 people at whatever x thousand uh, rupees uh, you know per person is that is that a monthly expense that's worth providing that kind of customer experience and the moment we put you know those numbers to it we figure out that you know what i mean given all kinds of costs we have everywhere uh, i think that's not a that's not really a, a too big an investment because if because it uh, matters to customer experience so for quite a long time uh, you know our call center ran with automated voice which said welcome to tata motors and then immediately you know the phone going to somebody who will greet you you know as a as a human being i'm not sure what it is now i haven't called them up uh, for a long time but uh, i hope it continues like that okay okay given the rapid adoption of it digital there is obviously a lot of information and customer data getting generated and stored how matured is india from a customer privacy point of view if you're asking for an opinion how mature are we from a from a customer privacy point of view i would i would say with respect to what Okay. I think the typically the the fingers will point towards Europe. Europe has its own GDPR law, which has, which is fairly strict and binds uh, companies to quite a bit of onerous terms of how to handle customer data. I do see that you know even companies which are not European, the fact that they have to do business in Europe, right, uh, adopt the GDPR standards and uh, these become available. These become available to. other regions so krishna kumar yeah uh, i see your comment where you're saying i meant along the lines of gdpr yes i understand that i'm coming to that question which is i'm just looking at more like a trend instead of giving you a answer good uh, bad or like you know high medium low in terms of maturity just trying to give a bit of a nuanced answer here see the today is an era of global businesses you know so you can actually uh, run a business from india and you can be serving uh, customers globally you can be a company anywhere and serving uh, consumers everywhere so therefore uh, in the era of global businesses a regulation coming up anywhere okay forces you 
if you love to grow, I mean, if you love growth, then you would have to keep an eye out for adopting these, uh, you know, regulations and uh, adopting and uh, making sure that, like, you know, that you are remaining competitive and you are remaining uh, safe and secure in any part of the world. Uh, most of the websites and apps today, you know, give you those uh, choices and options which are actually, uh, you know, outlined in GDPR, even though uh, the source country of those apps may not be following a GDPR like yourself. Now, coming to the Indian context, now, India is an IT powerhouse. We are serving the entire world. And uh, whether, you know, even if India is a little late in catching up to those regulations, I think uh, our regulations are going to be more or less in line with uh, GDPR, maybe a little stricter. Um, but it's uh, time for, you know, for, for organizations to catch up if you want to be a global business, that is. right. Now, coming to... Uh, now, now again, the other things there I want to add, Krishna, is that you know today is also the era of these uh, you know consumable, repeat, uh, reusable solutions, especially from the cloud. So you don't really use a hand-built uh, you know uh, CRM. You're using any of those standard CRMs mostly, and those CRMs uh, you know since they have to serve customers across the world, come with their own. Uh, I would say best practices and collations of uh, how to handle customer data. Um, so you better like you know uh, not tweak too much with how they <laughs> with how they do it, and just like simply adopt those best practices. So using uh, good standard systems uh, gives you that benefit of like you know bringing in some of the best practices, some of the security practices, and uh, and therefore like you know that allows you to catch up. As for your experience, how Indian companies' digitization adoption rates is uh, different from Western world or developed countries and why? Very good question, Dinesh. I will be, I'll restrict my answer to brick and mortar industries. Okay? So there's a whole, the world is today divided between the born in the cloud, the born digital companies who may be in a brick and mortar business, but you know, they start with a, they are like startups, okay? And we have the brick and mortar companies who are who are trying to digitally transform themselves. Now here, uh, in my experience, I've worked in both Indian and American companies. And uh, I would say our adoption rate or our own, uh, you know, uh, transformation has been slower than usual. Uh, I mean, than what I what what you find elsewhere. And I think the reason is uh, the cost of labor. So in in the Western world, the it's uh, much much easier to make a case for any automation or or digitization mm. uh, because you know if you are able to save, let us say a a, a couple of hours from you know someone's uh, role, or if you are able to let's say. If you're able to give a, a good self-service option to a consumer or if you're able to create a consumer experience which is uh, far far more efficient okay and uh, is able to get you done things like this you know you have to look at everything in terms of the amount of time that an employee spends on a process or a, or a consumer spends on a process right now as an enterprise you put a value to this time and this value to the time is basically like you know in absence of anything more nuanced, I will just take a crude thing called labor rate. Okay. So now, if you so if you look at the labor rate, uh, uh, you know, in the Western world and in India or in the let's say developing world, you will find that you know we have more people <clears throat> which can be thrown at a at a task 
and uh, and therefore like you know it's harder to build a business case for using technology rather than you know rather than rather than putting some more people on the on on, on that task now there are other aspects of uh, you know digitization which is like you know for example you know uh, generating useful data uh, having uh, you know one single version of data and you know and then you know the the tertiary benefits like you know the analytics and the insights uh, you know your ability to do mind data and all that those things sort of become you know somewhere uh, hazy uh, because what you what you what immediately makes people uh, invest in technology is like you know what is the immediate benefit i will get and i think that's where the cost of labor basically makes it uh, harder for you to justify any kind of automation that you're doing in india so i know that is not the best of the answers but that's like my version of it and um, that's why you know but this is changing of course <laughs> just in terms of trends i think two changes one is like you know the qualified manpower is harder to get and the second is that uh, uh, you know people are seeing more and more you know they are opening their eyes to the benefits of analytics to the benefits of uh, you know better controls using technology and stuff like that and of course like you know as a country itself like you know we are uh, the question i answered earlier about uh, you know the government pushing uh, for digitization oh this is changing this is really changing rapidly he says can you share challenges in managing partners to deliver and keep updated on technology with the speed of technology being updated mm so this is a great question you know we find that people have uh, our partners uh, when you go to their website or when you hear them out uh, you know there's a huge amount of uh, marketing pitch which says that we can do this we can do this we can do this but when you come to the enter your own enterprise where the, your partner is uh, serving you you don't find those uh, things uh, you know uh, coming out really uh, in a spectacular fashion to you so i think that that leads to this kind of a question that uh, how can your partner keep you updated with technology so and what is the challenge around that so rakesh uh, you know we have to understand the the way these organizations work and uh, the architecture and once you understand that uh, that is what allows you to basically work around this okay how does an it services organization work so they have the delivery functions you know where you have these uh, technology guys you know who uh, are running your operations and then you have you know these uh, uh, what do you call the, the, the research and development the research functions or the technology functions or you know the coes who are trying to create new solutions uh, these are like sitting somewhere else these are not sitting in your operations or somewhere on top of your operations okay now what is their focus they they are always focused on incremental business on additional business or on new business okay and they are creating those solutions for that uh, or those pocs for uh, that incremental business again you know given the what we just spoke about you know the 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 labor arbitrage labor cost arbitrage because of which the focus will be uh, towards the west and you will find that you know whatever being talked about outside is not being talked about with you so the 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 bridge here will always be through the account manager so i have always looked at account manager as not someone who is like you know managing or keeping uh, live and kicking my operations 
you know, coming from the partner, but someone, you know, who I have to challenge, you know, to get me the best of that partner. Okay. Whatever you hear about, you know, your partner doing out there or like, you know, a technology area that you think is applicable to your business. Uh, I think you should have regular meetings with your account manager. You have to put your account manager on a bit of a pedestal in terms of because he's the one who gets you the value. He or she is the one who gets you the value. So you have to challenge them. You have to partner with them in, you know, getting the sort of knowledge into your ecosystem, you know, getting them to organize some of these sessions, you know, for you as well as your business people in terms of what uh, new technology can do for you. Uh, and, you know, set up some sort of a system of governance, including some KPIs. Uh, like, for example, you know, one of the KPIs that you can run is, hey, you know, how many improvement ideas have, or how many improvement ideas or new technology ideas have come from you or how many POCs have we done, uh, you know, in terms of improving uh, our operations. So, so think of it, uh, you know, in a, in a management sense. Okay. So if it was, I mean, how would you be governing the relationship uh, in a way where you're not only talking of SLAs and, uh, you know, and, and the operational improvements, but you're also putting the new technologies or innovations or new solutions, you know, as an integral part of your day-to-day discussions uh, with the partner. I think that requires a bit of maturity to take up the level of the discussions on a day-to-day basis. But I think uh, you have to do that if you want to get the best out of, out of your partners, right? Being in being and working in Europe, manufacturing industry from last 15 years, I fully endorse your view, Jagdish, uh, shared on your question. Uh, I think, uh, Sandeep, you're talking about the, 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 the cost arbitrage and the respect for automation, the, the the ROI for automation and all of that, right? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Sandeep. I've been to Germany. I love the country. The only thing I, uh, you know, I missed was I visited at a time where it was like raining on a daily basis, very cloudy, raining on a daily basis. And even though the sun was out till 10, 10 p.m., I couldn't play golf there. I, I would love to play uh, uh, golf in Germany. Martin Kemmer is one of my uh, one of the players I always love watching uh, on golf. Right? Very very balanced and very calm and cool guy. One of my role models there. How work culture affects this year? That's a great question. Great question. See, work culture is a is a is a is a huge subject in itself. But let us cover a little bit of you know. I think where I think you are coming from to get the best of decisions. Okay, uh, what you really need is uh, for people to feel you know absolutely free about making decisions. You can only have two types of decisions. You can have like you know decisions which are very conservative uh, in nature. You know, very risk averse in nature, and you can have. Uh, decisions which are like you know uh, which are really pushing the envelope right in that context uh, you know the work culture matters quite a lot if you have a work culture you know where uh, let's say mistakes are accepted okay where where you don't get beaten up for you know a bad decision or like you know a decision not going right uh, i think you will see that people take you will see more vibrancy you will see people taking more risks okay and you will see people speaking their mind now, coming to culture itself, uh, you know, again, all of you uh, hearing me here are, you know, uh, leading teams in some other sense. So I want to, I want to leave you with a, you know, with an actionable. Uh, in my view, the work culture in your department is a function of your behaviors. Okay, if if you are uh, if you are tolerant of uh, failures, if you are tolerant of mistakes. You will see that your team is like, you know, taking faster decisions. They are not afraid and they are not afraid to make mistakes. 
if you're tolerant of criticism, if you're tolerant of differences of opinion, right, uh, you will find that, you know, there's a much more uh, frank and honest dialogues happening in the in your department or in your company. And uh, the, the level of defensiveness in people is much lesser, right? If you are punctual, your team will be punctual, right? If you are... If you're passionate about your customer, your team will be passionate about your customers, right? So your behavior will have a direct impact on your uh, on your team's culture, okay? So whatever decisions you want your teams to take, let's let's personalize it a little bit. Let's cut the gyan out and let's make it actionable. Uh, whatever you are, uh, whatever you want your team to do, whatever type of decisions you want your teams to take, you know, work backwards and see that like, you know, work out how you will need to be responding to them how you need to you know take those decisions yourself and uh, you know what are those things that are stopping them from uh, from from doing what uh, how you expect them to do it and somewhere you know you will find that the answers are within you so uh, i hope that uh, that helps hey i am your podcast host jagdish belwal i had a rich career as cio at tata motors and ge now as an advisor i help organizations transform with technology technology is necessary for digital transformation but not sufficient so i help organizations with the rest of it leadership strategy culture change management etc you can connect with me on linkedin and twitter for now keep listening and don't forget to subscribe the podcast and do connect with me on linkedin you asked another question prashant which was about uh, how uh, at senior leadership level what attributes affect uh, decision making uh, i would say a lot the more you go at a senior level the more uh, number of factors you have to take into account and as you keep going uh, higher and higher i think the number of external factors in your decision making becomes uh, bigger and bigger okay that means you know your reputational factors your uh, the brand uh, perception the changes to your brand perception even even uh, even news channels talking about anything that you have done so i'll leave you with an example and then mm-hmm. sort of uh, help you understand what i'm saying so here we were uh, long back we had a new product you know which was like a buzz you know 1 lakh rupees car and uh, we were preparing ourselves for an onslaught of like you know customer demand okay and then obviously we would have limited capacity so we would have to do uh, some sort of a lottery mechanism okay now the kind of visibility that the product had you know we did actually everything we had this entire system in place and around that time there was a dda uh, flat allotment uh, you know news story which many channels were running that you know they were they were basically putting all kind of suspicions out there in terms of how those dda flat allocations were happening and i said my oh my god you know if these kind of aspersions are cast on you know how we have allotted uh, we have, how we are allotting cars uh, that would be really disastrous so i actually suggested to my business guys i said listen you know we should have one of the audit firms actually uh, you know run through our entire process of how we are uh, you know doing the random selection of customers we should also do an internal check in terms of a correlation between let's say for example you know we take this data sample data let's say we run a lottery on 200000 uh, customer records and uh, we do all kinds of statistical analysis of the data you know which city how much uh, which age group how much and all that and once we have done the random sampling we again take that smaller sample and we see like you know what kind of 
correlation coefficient we are getting. Ours was internally was pretty good, but then I think we brought in one of the big force to audit the entire process. Uh, they helped ruggedize the process, and uh, and that's how the entire uh, you know lottery process was done. Now you know if you are just doing it as a department or thinking of it as a technology problem, you know you might be putting the company itself to risk. So as you go higher, you will have to start looking at more and more external factors and more and more external uh, coefficients to be addressed. Okay. Okay. So here I have with me uh, uh, Balaji. Let me bring him. Bring him on. Hey, Balaji. How are you? Good morning. Good afternoon. How are you, Chikdish? Hey, Balaji. Good to see you after <laughs> quite some time. <laughs> I know it has been a long time. Yeah, it's But been it's... a long time. Yeah. How so just for the just for the audience' uh, sake, you know how I and Balaji know each other when I was the. CIO at Tata Motors. <laughs> Balaji was the CIO at Tata Technologies, who was our you know biggest uh, IT services partner, and of course Tata Motors held a stake in them. Yeah, Balaji. So let's do a bit of a discussion around uh, you know uh, IT OT strategies, OE, SCADA, and also you know it's I think so much easier to hear it uh, from you rather than uh, reading that long question. Sure, uh, I will say I'll start by saying Jagdish. I think. You know that time that I spent back in Tata Technologies particularly helped me through my career because I think as you grow, it's incredibly important to be on both sides of the table and to understand what it means to be a partner and to understand what it means to be a customer is a perspective that I think is is a privilege through your career. The question specifically is for manufacturing organizations. Right now, you know, I work in the medical device industry. I'm a senior director at a company called Medtronic. It's one of the large medical device companies, and ultimately. Most of these guys have large manufacturing plants, and what I've seen is no matter which company you go to, we're traditionally good in what I call the IT space, ERP, PLM, all the systems that we're strong in. But the technology is shifting much more towards the shop floor, right? So, how do you connect the machines? How do you digitize it? And then in parallel, we have engineering technologies come in through the manufacturing organization, and really looking for what you've seen in other companies. I think there's Unfortunately, there's lesser cases where we have collaboration, but more cases where there's more what do you call it competition. And I think I don't know if it's just the industry that's very young and evolving, or it's just the fact of why have I seen it in the same case in so many companies. And so, looking to get your thoughts there. Oh no, no, no! I've seen it. <laughs> I've, I've I've seen it in companies I've worked in. So <laughs> ask me about it. You're absolutely right, Balaji. Uh, there's a you know I, I would say. It's more like protecting your turf. There's not so much. I won't. I won't call it competition, but it's protecting your turf. You know. So, you know, the shop floor people have always been running. Uh, you know, the local IT with a with a with a with a complete control. You know, I I don't think it is in their nature or it is in their I would say experience to be controlled by any corporate policies. So we know that. You know, the hardcore operations functions are. Very, very autonomous, right? There's not too much of corporate interference, which is there, whether it's shop floor or whether it is materials and supply chain or whether it is sales and distribution. You know, uh, there's far more autonomy that they enjoy just because they are, you know, nobody, nobody dares touch those uh, those value creation activities, right? But when you look at IT as a function, we tend to like you know bring in a certain sort of like you know guardrails and certain. i would say policies and all of that just because you know it impacts the organization you know one hole somewhere in your entire enterprise 
can actually bring down the enterprise, right? And I think that's where the clash is. The clash is in the fundamental nature of how IT thinks about putting controls and guardrails versus, you know, operations functions uh, loving their at- autonomy and not entertaining anyone anyone from outside. How I sort of worked on this was to actually work with my manufacturing leaders. You know, we have to go higher up. We can't be uh, competing or like, you know, having that, uh, what, what do you call conflict in the DNA itself, you know, at my operations level, you know, between my network engineers versus, you know, their, you know, the, the machine technologies, right? So we had to first diagnose this problem at a very senior level. So at a at a plant head level, you know, when, when I discussed with them, I first made them aware of this challenge. What are the differences between the way our guys think, right? Then we also looked at like, you know, we you also have to then define the pain or the challenge. I think the biggest challenge is there, like, you know, there's so much of USBs were, which were into play at that time. Uh, it was really putting, uh, you know, uh, uh, it was putting them to risk and they had seen, you know, those kind of impacts. Uh, the machines were, the controller machines were pretty old and they were, and they saw those goals. So I think at a senior level, people are always looking at it from the risk point of view. Okay, So while they may be tolerating what the people at the shop floor are doing, they are very well aware of the risks and challenges. So I think the agenda needs to be made there. That awareness and alignment of where we are coming from needs to be created there. And then I think we need to push into, you know, those sort of self-governing working groups, like, you know, your your network guys, my network guys working together, you know, your, your guys uh, working with my guys, and then solving the problem. So I think when they are trying to solve a problem, if I partner with them, it becomes much easier for me to get attraction uh, onto uh, with them, right? Or when I'm trying to solve a problem, let's say trying to re-risk something, and I ask for their help, I think that's the approach we should be taking. Number one, starting from the top. Number two, becoming aware of the, you know, the differences in our thinking. And the number three is like, you know, getting into see this joint teaming and problem-solving mode. Everything eventually, whatever we want to do, can be broken down into a series of problems to solve. And, you know, both the guys on their side, on on plant floor side and IT side are actually engineers. So they love solving problems. So you have to like throw it to them as problems and and they will basically partner uh, together. But, you know, I think looking at it from a competition point of view may not, will probably kill the whole thing right, right, right at the beginning itself, you know. Does it make sense, Balaji? No, absolutely does. I think the to add to the challenge, I think in the traditional IT space, we seem to have very strong methods and approaches, right? We have enterprise architecture, there's Gartner, there's lots of people that the traditional IT people go to the library and say, here's the standards. When it comes to the OT space, a lot of the technology is still evolving, right? So you yeah. usually get the CIO to say, go back and tell me the Gartner force And I think that's part of the challenge also that as much as you talked about the problems in manufacturing, IT is also not truly evolved to, to understand that space. So we'll definitely just, uh, but agree with the point that there's always alignment at the top. It's then cascading it down to the middle and the lower layers. I think that's a very true comment. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely, Balaji. Hey, thanks thanks for joining us, uh, Balaji. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, Anil is asking, what about containing supply chain disruption with respect to business continuity? Oh, we are learning it, Anil. <laughs> As if the pandemic wasn't enough, you know, we have the Ukraine situation, you know, again, sending everyone back to the drawing boards uh, in terms of how to 
you know, uh, secured your supply chains. And uh, there's more to come. Uh, in fact, I was, you know, I've been, I've discussed this a couple of times. In a, one was in the C4, in a C, uh, a private panel that I did. So it isn't on the social media. Uh, the other time was again a, was again a private one, you know, where I was addressing supply chain function of a large multinational. And uh, my take was that, you know, um, this is a classic uh, problem on two sides. One is to, one is, you know, traditionally uh, people have been doing this supplier consolidation. So, you know, you are trying to reduce the number of suppliers you deal directly with. And therefore you have a limited number of, uh, you know, tier one suppliers. And, and then, you know, you have the next uh, tier two suppliers and the tier three suppliers. Okay. And very conveniently, people have left the tier two and tier three management to the tier one itself. Okay. And what you see the problems that are happening today is that lack of knowledge or the lack of data that you have about your tier two and tier, tier three suppliers. Okay. So I think it's time to get back into, uh, you know, the vertical integration but not vertical integration from an operations point of view that, you know, you start buying out all your suppliers uh, right down to NS level, but vertical integration in terms of data. So you need to vertically integrate your data. That means you keep data about your tier one, you keep data about your tier two, you keep data about your tier three, and then you start putting all the other stuff in place. Like for example, which, you know, which locations they are in, which countries they are in, you know, what kind of lead times they have. So I'm keeping a record of my lead times with my tier one. Do I have a sense of what are my uh, tier two lead times with tier one or tier three lead times with tier two? I think you have to you have to manage the entire information chain if you want to manage the supply chain, right? I hope I hope that helps. Well, just to add to that, like you know, unless you have all of that, you cannot do any kind of supply chain analytics. You cannot do any kind of what if analysis of like you know. Uh, building scenarios on if this happens, then how will I get disrupted? You know, uh, which plants I should ramp up, which plants I should ramp down, and other. Hey, I hope you loved it as much as I did sharing my own experiences and case studies. Please do subscribe to Clarity Chat podcast. It's available on all major podcasting platforms. In our next podcast, I will interact with you in a freewheeling Clarity Chat part four of Ask Me Anything AMA. We will cover audience questions around AIML maturity, HR's role in digital transformation, CDO versus CIO, and effective contract management KPIs, plus many more. Watch out for our next Clarity Chat podcast, Ask Me Anything AMA Part 4.